Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. You've tuned into a Bully Pulpit special series for Symposium One, which the Hebrew Union College convened in New York City in November of 2016. Symposium One was organized around the theme of crafting Jewish life in a complex religious landscape. We at the Bully Pulpit had the privilege of interviewing some of the outstanding thinkers who participated in Symposium One, and we think you'll enjoy the conversation. Today, I look forward to an exciting conversation with Rabbi Owen Gottlieb, Ph.D., who is Assistant Professor of Interactive Games and Media at Rochester Institute of Technology. He's also the founder and lead researcher of the Initiative in Religion, Culture, and Policy at the Rochester Institute of Technology's Magic Center, which is the Institute's state-of-the-art laboratory and game studio. And in 2010, Rabbi Gottlieb founded Convergent, Jewish Games for Learning. Owen, can I call you Owen? Yes, certainly. It's good great morning. to have you. Thank you for... Uh, Boker Tov. Boker Or. It's good to have you. I'd like to begin big and then bring the conversation down to your expertise and really your very fascinating projects. But starting big, I want to talk to you about technology and learning. I think the first important thing to think about technology is that it's agnostic. It's neither good nor bad. This is Kranzberg, Melvin Kranzberg's notion, the first principle of technology. It's neither good nor bad, nor, nor is it neutral. And it depends about how you're going to employ it. So usually when I think about educational technology, I think mostly about media in terms of what's the content and how is the content available in ways that are related to the affordances of the media. Because if we don't, one, match the affordance, what the media allows you to do. What does affordance mean? Affordance is what an object, or in this case media, will allow you to do with it. And so each media tends to have a set of affordances that are unique or special to that, that they do better than other kinds of media. So, for example, if you're looking at manuscripts, they're going to have certain affordances. If you're looking at a codex, that's going to have certain affordances, and a video game is going to have certain affordances, and they're different. So I think technology is the tool, and media is the way in which content uses that tool. It's also very hard to create good media, so right. you know we have to remember this is not a silver bullet. It's not easy, but if we leverage the affordances of the medium in particular, I think we have a much better chance of reaching our, our teaching and learning goals. I find that technology, not not technology, philosophically speaking, in which you know fire and uh, the wheel are also technology, but I mean specifically digital media. Because it's big and ubiquitous, sometimes, even among very thoughtful teachers, promotes the opposite of your prescription for best use. We mistake the tool for the work. The nature of the medium in its shiny newness and its attractiveness, I'm a guy who loves technology, can promote that mistake Do you think that that's an accurate read of a lot of us? Sure. I think it's what all the researchers tell us also in education and technology. I think the danger in popular culture is the over-evangelization of the technology as, you know, this notion of a silver bullet, as opposed to thinking about really how does this medium work. And so part of that is to say, you know, if someone's in a classroom, maybe they are not the best situated to come across what are the affordances or how to use it. Because, of course, the job of the classroom teacher is always beset by not having enough time. And so how do we help people to prepare and to use that? And I think part of that also is literacy of the people who are going to use right. technology and media. To what extent can we assist 
people and becoming a little more literate in you know my specialties in video games. How many video games are you playing? I, I came out of a film background, among among other backgrounds like software, and um, I'm I'm usually amazed that people who are thinking about using games, I say, well, what games are you playing or have you played? And they say, oh, well, I don't really play games. To me, that's similar to saying, um, you know, we're going to teach with cinema, but you've never watched a, a movie. Or teach um, with books and you never read. Or you didn't read, right. So, yeah, I think we have to kind of be neither over-evangelizing nor ignore all the great possibilities because then we'll miss all the affordances right. and, and we'll miss the opportunities. And if we hadn't taken advantage of the printing press, that would have been really sad for right. our people, I think. I think it would help if we um, institutionally didn't think of technology as a tool for efficiency. You haven't mentioned efficiency once. You're talking about affordances and leverage and tools being really well used for great ends, none of which saves you time necessarily. Yeah, this is the scale issue. So, for example, certain technologies will scale much more easily, assuming that the content is focused and well put together, um, the ability to reach one, like this podcast, you can reach many, many more people very quickly. I tend not to think about that as the most exciting as a teacher, but right, as someone right. who wants to uh, you know, spread knowledge, spreadable media, that's very exciting. Right, and there is an efficiency built into that. I see yeah. that, I see that. Right. I was thinking from the teacher's perspective of the work of preparing and... But I mean, if we can use, you know, if we're able to, uh, to send out a game that everyone can download, then all of that knowledge that would go into preparation, if it's packaged in a way where you've worked with classroom teachers to say, is it prepared for someone to unpack? It's not easy, and I think that the danger is people think it's easy, you put it in a box, you ship right. it through, through the digital pipe, and it's done. And that, that really doesn't take into account what teaching and learning really needs to do, either in the production of the media, the use of technology, or the spread. You can spread things that are no good and no one's going to use them. I mean, they won't really spread. You can put them in the pipeline, but no one's going to pick them up. So looking to the research and learning is really key. So um, whether that's in the learning sciences, or in curriculum and instruction, or teaching and learning, and design, because design is a very big part of that. Not just design right. for learning, but also media design. So there are many disciplines that go into, into this right. kind of work. Jewish Time Jump is a game that opens up a window into which of the realms of learning that you're interested in. So Jewish Time Jump is probably better understood in the early days of Convergence, starting around okay. 2010, and then it becomes the, the subject of my dissertation. Okay. So in 2010, I'm on my way to NYU just after getting ordination at HUC, and I wanted to find a way to um, start making innovations on the ground in digital media and games for learning. How could I bring the most cutting-edge media to Jewish education in innovative ways and really try to push the boundary? And Jewish Time Jump New York came out of things I was learning at conferences from scholars like Kurt Squire and Jim Matthews at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And they had started to really push the boundaries, along with colleagues like Eric Klopfer at MIT, of using handheld devices, uh, mobile devices, for what's called mobile augmented reality gaming. So nowadays we're a little more familiar with it because people have seen Pokemon Go. But how could you use the geolocation and the tool set on your phone to allow learners to have highly interactive place-based experiences? And I was really looking for, for a connection point between Jewish studies and games for learning. 2007 sees a re-emergence of games and simulations in education, and it was a big deal in the 60s and 70s, paper-based gaming, role-playing simulations. And then a re-emergence comes out of kind of shifts in digital media to say, 
where are young people learning? Well, they're learning all kinds of complex systems inside of video games. And I was saying, okay, where does Jewish studies come in? When I saw what Jim Matthews and Kurt Squire were doing with a documentary, a situated documentary called Dow Day, which had to do with protests in the late 1960s um, on the campus of UW-Madison, when Dow Chemical comes to visit and starts to recruiting, and there are tremendous protests and there's conflict with the police. And they created a game Jim's Game Dow Day, in which the player plays a reporter on the scene and is interviewing people from various perspectives um, during this. And through that process comes to understand the history specifically situated on the campus. So you're at a certain geolocation, you get media from that time period, and now you're learning history through active investigation on the situated location that it actually happened. And this was very exciting to me, and I saw the first opening for Jewish studies there. Um, because if I was thinking about Talmud, or I was thinking about Mishnah, or I was thinking about Hebrew language, there was not an a bridge that made a lot of sense. But when I saw this, I said, there's a direct bridge to Jewish history. So I saw great history teaching going on, deeply informed by civic and democratic education goals, deeply informed by place-based learning and community-based learning, history and documentary, and I have a former history in working in documentary as well. And so I said, I can start working on that today and work on the, the kind of cutting-edge scholarship research and design that's being done and build the first Jewish digital learning game that, that is incorporating all of the kinds of pedagogical and research elements that I knew I would have to do. So when I saw what they were doing, I, I ended up collaborating a great deal with, um, with these scholars. On Dow Day? Uh, no, on Jewish Time Jump. Dow Day had already completed. So, and then that was a process of about three years to put together Jewish Time Jump, which is released in May of 2013. And then, you know, we were actually nominated for uh, Games for Change, uh, most innovative game that year. So that's in the secular world. So my goal was always to say, it's got to be of the quality that the secular world is going to respond to it. But it was a story that takes place in 1909, right out where from where we are now right, in Washington, here, right. Washington Square Park. It's a time travel story, so you know the report. I, I use the same idea of the reporter that comes out of Dow Day, but I made it a time traveling reporter, so I could jump between periods of time. I also have an affinity for time travel stories and science fiction, and so I started to wrap history documentary through this kind of science fiction wrappers. So in Jewish Time Jump New York, the learners land on the eve of the uprising of 20,000, the largest women-led strike in U.S. history, and it's a situated documentary takes place on site, and it's a documentary about women's history, Jewish history, labor history, immigrant history. So learners play time travelers, and when they land, they're on location in Washington Square Park. About 30,000 uh, shirtwaist workers came out into the streets protesting everything from low wages to mistreatment on the job. Learners get that media live on site, triggered by their GPS location. They interact with many, many characters ranging from manufacturers, bosses, to uh, labor organizers, to a variety of citizens of different ethnicities, Jewish, Irish, Italian. They learn about advocacy-based organizing. Players will eventually jump to the time of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. So spoiler alert if you're listening, uh -huh. you know, skip ahead in the podcast. Uh -huh. So they're on site for the fire. So, you know, most of the unions after the uprising of 20,000 uh, most of the uh, factories became unionized with only a handful remaining. But of those remaining, one was the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, which was the largest factory. And about 144 young women, most, mostly young women, mostly Jewish and Italian, perish in that fire. And it changes labor laws in this country forever. And we really think about what are the connections of that history and how can we make those connections for learners today. 
So, for example, we tie together the labor practices that go into making the iPhones and tablets that they're playing on, which are sites of labor dispute. And we tie together, you know, recent factory at the time of the creation of the game, recent factory crash in Bangladesh. So how can we think about history today and what it means today locally? There are still sweatshops in New York City. How can we think about history globally, that there are connections and trends and, and what uh, authors Barton and Levstick kind of call enduring themes in history. So this was a process of trying to make something media-rich, exciting, that people could connect to, that's kind of like making a, a living museum outside. And we were able to do that because of the new technologies that were being experimented with at MIT and Wisconsin-Madison. I came out of that with a deeper understanding of the creation of complex digital interactive media. Uh, we had a team of about 30 people working on that, five historians, five archival researchers, uh, teams of engineers, illustrators, sound designers, editors. It's, it feels like filmmaking and the breadth and depth of the necessary collaborations to make it work. Filmmaking plus software development and all of the extra things. So maybe an, an entire additional set of industry focuses that go into game uh, making and game design. So whereas we, we had to write the script for the documentary, you also have to then design the interactions of the game as well. Uh, learned a lot in that process. So we got the first, I think, Jewish video game out there that was working with complex pedagogical pursuit. And so that's kind of what I'm very proud of, in particular with Jewish Time Jump. That's the subject of my dissertation. I was doing design-based research about how do we advance learning theory through that. So we were doing a great deal of data gathering and analysis. And then every time we would iterate or change the software and take it back into the field with learners, before we released it, we were also developing learning theory. And we found some interesting things out about how to open people up to points of view that they might not previously been open to. And that had to do with how we had characters respond back to uh, biases that players were showing. Um, if you didn't want to listen to a boss, what are ways in which we could eventually find that learners would be able to articulate a perspective of a factory owner that, that they had very like, they large antagonistic with, that they were antagonistic to? And so we found that there were ways in which we could have those owners express the same type of bias back to the player, and suddenly players are now articulating the other perspective. So the goal of design-based research from a scholarly research perspective is how do we change learning theory? How do we make you know, small advances in learning theory through the iterative design of an artifact like a video game? So this is very exciting research for me, and I'm now carrying that on at, at RIT. And there are a number of projects that we're working on at RIT at the Initiative in Religion, Culture, and Policy, but the one that I kind of want to concentrate on today is called Lost and Found. So Lost and Found is a strategy game, and I was looking for connections between rabbinic literature and game systems the whole time, and had been percolating this notion that games are, one, they're rule-based systems, and what are games really good at? So we know games are really good at teaching problem solving, and they're very good at modeling of complex systems. And that goes into what we were working on in the history project, because what type of problem do you have to solve? Well, you have to solve a history inquiry problem. So what type of problem would I want to solve with rabbinic literature? And what I started to look at was the Mishnah Torah. So I said, I want a system of laws Mishnah Torah is the compilation of laws by Moses Maimonides. Right, created, it's, he's, he's writing in 1170 in to 1180 in Fustat Old Cairo, and that's where the strategy game is set. 
So what we've been working on for about three years now is a tabletop strategy card game. You may have seen young people playing Magic the Gathering, or maybe you've played Settlers of Catan. So both uh, kind of Euro game systems and card systems that require things like resource management. We took a section in particular from Mishnah Torah that deals with lost and found objects. Now, why did I look at Mishnah Torah? There were a number of reasons why particularly I looked at Mishnah Torah. One, what Maimonides was doing with Mishnah Torah um, was taking all of the learning that comes out of the Mishnah and then the commentaries that become the Talmud and all of the discussions, and then again trying to say how could he bring a system where people could understand how they could apply Jewish law to their daily lives. And so we once again get a crystallization of sets of rules in Mishnah Torah, and I needed a set of rules to work with that did not require hours and hours of Talmudic debate, but I could say, here's a, a rule system that we can start to think about. So there's some mirroring going on in your project and his project. There's an artificial limitation of the variables, which is what he did and what he was criticized for in his day because it's, it's, it's an innovation to do that. And then to present it in a way that you can then do something with, which I hear you doing with your work. Is that a fair thing to say that there's this mirroring? Yeah, I try not to compare myself to Maimonides, but I think some of the yeah, goals are right. similar because the more I learn about Maimonides, the more mind-blowing it is that you know any individual one of his achievements are, are pretty yes, breathtaking. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I had to make limits because um, you know a game has a limited set of time. You can't debate the law forever. So how could I get a crystallized set of laws? And even we use some responses back to Maimonides when we're trying to figure out the case structures for this game. There were other reasons about thinking about Fustat in 12th century as well, and those had to do with the interactions with the Muslim population. So what are the relationships between, say, the Mishnah Torah and the Jurist Primer or Al-Hidayah? And What's the discussion going back and forth as Maimonides is learning from great Muslim scholars like Averroes and Al-Ghazali, and how is Maimonides' work then influencing Muslim culture? So when I was looking at this game, I wasn't just looking at it from a perspective like Jewish time jump, but primarily thinking about Jewish history, although that game was focused on how could I make a game that would be open to anybody, even though it came from a particular story that was focused on Jewish figures. But now I'm actually working at RCP on a much wider perspective of comparative religion in the wider sense. So I wanted to be able to expand this game to start thinking about the Jurists Primer and Al-Hadayat but starting with Mishnah Torah as the core. So right. I collaborate with Muslim scholars, Jewish scholars, along with all the designers and engineers and graphic designers and sound designers along the way. So we were then funded about a year ago by the National Endowment for the Humanities to make a digital prototype of our game. And so we premiered actually the digital prototype at the 50th anniversary of the National Endowment for the Humanities in September. And so we now have a working mobile phone version of this game, which is teaching medieval religious legal systems. It's dealing in particular with what anthropologists would call the pro-social aspects of religious law. So we hear a lot about, oh, this medieval religious legal system is terrible, or this religious legal system is bad, and, and we have to understand these things, one, in context. Where are they? What are we talking about? What's the cultural milieu? Because religious law also has tremendous pro-social aspects, holding communities together, helping communities be more sustainable. Promoting business and interchange, both exactly. internally and externally. Right. And one of the problems that we've dealt with a lot in religious legal codes, in particular, I'm thinking of Talmud, which is in a code, but, but dealing with problems of tragedies of the commons. If we don't care for the non-individually used communal resources, we will destroy our community. And really, they're dealing with these types of questions. For example, if I don't return your animal, your cow, your ox that's taking your property to the market, are you going to return mine? 
What are the norms that the religious law holds that are in many ways uh, to a much higher standard than we would hold today? And what might we learn from those about community sustainability? And so the questions that we pose in the current version of the game, because, right, we're always iterating the game, have to do with how do you balance your family needs with your communal needs? How do you deal with limited resources while addressing cases that come from the law in terms of lost objects, lost animals? So can you describe an aspect of that game, a moment in that game that would illustrate precisely this point of what we call pro-social uh, legal norms. Sure, so part of the game is you have to balance your family and communal needs. So you have certain cards that you have to fulfill, and so you have to usually work as a as almost like a village. So if you have five players sitting around a table, everyone has limited resources, but in order to win the game, you have to make sure that the elements, uh, we, we, you know, we took from Talmud, what are the 10 elements of a town that would merit a Torah scholar as key elements that a town would need Maimonides actually alters this one of them he adds is clean water. So you've got to get clean water for your town and you have to pool your resources to get that. At the same time we took what are the responsibilities of a Jewish family from a parent to a child you have to teach the law, ideally they, be, they go to chupa, they find a partner, you have to teach them to swim so, right. so we took those, and then we have, you have to balance those. Along the way, things happen in the community. Someone loses their animal. Someone's uh, honey jar cracks, and you have to determine um, how are you going to decide to assist that person or not. Are you going to follow what the law suggests? Are you going to break the law? And what are the consequences of that uh, across the table if you don't help your neighbor out? This is a mobile game? So it's uh, a tabletop strategy card game, and we also have a mobile version prototype that we've just built. But the mobile version is independent of the tabletop, I meaning you don't need the tabletop stuff to do the mobile version? Correct. For those who play these types of games, like a Settlers of Catan, Catan or an Agricola, right. there are mobile versions of these games. And so you can either play with a networked version or an artificial intelligence. And, but the, the mechanics of the game are either the same or very similar? They're almost identical in this version. So there are these cards you get, they have certain benefits and values, and they can be mitigated or advanced depending on the way you play them. And this all appears on the screen or on the tabletop. And in exactly. This case, the mechanics of the game are very different from what you experience in Time Jump. Oh, yeah. The lessons you learned about Time Jump, the one that I'm picking up on as, as, as a very compelling one, is in Time Jump, you developed a way to change the perspective of the player because of the interactions as you designed them. And the success of the design in helping change the perspective of the player then becomes part of the educational conversation writ large about how do we change the perspective of students? How do we bring students mm. to learn something new by adopting new perspectives? And that's, of course, any teacher knows that that's an important thing. And you were able to wrangle the medium, this digital medium, to help advance that educational goal and become part of the educational conversation. Did I hear you right? I think so. I think you're seeing a through line in the notion of design-based research. So when I now am working in Lost and Found and we're doing play tests and we're taking the game out with learners and gathering data, Again, we're looking for what are we going to learn about learning in the process. Both advancing the game system towards the learning goals to bring our learners closer to it, and then what learning theory will we be able to draw out of it. Now, I suspect it's going to be different than Jewish Time Jump, but what we're starting to see now is um, we have some very early preliminary data about teaching law 
and teaching rhetoric. So as the game shifts and changes, how are we going to move it closer to the goals about when we teach Mishnah Torah, for example, or Al Hidayah, the Jurist's Primer? How do we reach those learning goals better? Because it's very hard to create an artifact or a system to reach those learning goals. So we always start with the learning goal and design back, but it's never a straight road to get there, kind of like finding the sculpture inside of a block of marble. So, for example, one of the things that's really key in, in Lost and Found is the historical and cultural milieu. All of the graphic design and illustration for the project is very carefully researched. So, for example, working with Dr. Philip Ackerman Lieberman at Vanderbilt to say, when we create the honey jug, what is the right kind of honey jug? When we look at a coinage from the period and a dinar, what a dinar actually look like? And is Maimonides referring to a dinar of 1170, 1180, maybe, but he might also be referring to one from 250 in Palestine, or he might be referring to a Talmudic in Babylon. And so, for example, in our three dinar card, you see with writing around it, three type of dinarim from each of the periods. And so you, there's also a, a passive learning in the historical milieu through the design and illustration. Every card back is based on architecture from Old Cairo Fustat in 12th century. So you start to get the feel of the period that, oh, by the way, Jews wore turbans back then. Right? So, so there's different ways of teaching and learning, and we're trying to embed them throughout the gameplay and the system, but also passive learning in terms of how it looks and feels. The digital version has a score that I'm very proud of that is actually ethnomusicologically correct for the period, performed by a master Uddist and composed by a wonderful composer named Shogi Hayes. So when you play the game, you're also immersing in the accurate music of the period with seeing the architecture at the same time. So there are many different kind of learning big, goals in this right, case. But what I'm struck by your work here is not just the sophistication of the media and the sophistication of the educational goals, working backwards, etc., but the sheer ambition <laughs> of what you're trying to cover in a single game. I mean, you spoke about appreciating the pro-social values of a rules-based system rather than viewing it just as restrictions. That's a deeply emotional and cognitive thing that you want to convey. It's ambitious. You have, you have an ambitious set of goals, and now you just added to that by telling me you have all these passive goals, these leitmotifs, effectively, which are also very demanding. I mean, you have to hire a composer and an Udist. I mean, that, that reflects back on the highly, highly collaborative and multi-disciplinary multi, uh, nature of, of the medium. And then there was another primary learning goal, which is also huge, which is some sense of the fertility of the interreligious experience. So what strikes me about your ambition, aside from it being dauntingly attractive and, and, and really impressive. Or crazy. Yeah, or, or crazy. <laughs> is maybe this is me, maybe it's generational, I don't know, but whenever there's an immersive video game, in my case, it's the shoot 'em up of my son, which has no learning goals as far as I can tell. But Aiming, but, probably. Yeah, right, aiming, right, right. The dexterity and the... Visual acuity, actually. Visual acuity, You'll right. find good visual right. acuity comes out of those. But they're, they're deeply immersive. Uh, there's, there's music, there's interpersonal relating, there is very sophisticated graphics, uh, etc. I'm struck by two contradictory things. One is the possibilities of the motions of the characters, in this case it's all about motion because it's a shoot 'em up game, is seemingly on the one hand infinite, I mean, you know, an X and a Y with an upward uh, thrust of the joystick and a, a right left, you know, trigger thing, can, does this kind of jump or whatever. And that, that's, on the one hand it seems arbitrary, which I understand because there's, you just gotta mix and match to come up with a very, you know. On the other hand, it seems almost infinite to the non-native. In other words, these moves and these, they seem uh, dizzyingly infinite. 
So that's one thing. The contradictory part of it is that the interactions of more of these games and strategy games where you go into a, f a fantasy world and you have relatively long dialogue boxes and you engage with people to find things or to go in a direction. I don't know what those games are called, if there's a term for those kinds of, um, like... Um, uh, RTS? I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know what that means. Real, a real-time strategy, maybe? Yeah, that might I be. I mean, a, there's so many genres of video games. The thing that I'm struck with there is the utter limitedness and, and the, art, the, the, the I can't get past the artificial limitedness of the human interaction component because I know that there's only so much code that a person can write and that the character with whom I'm interacting can only really respond in finite ways. And I'm, I'm constantly aware of that, not just because I'm a curmudgeonly 45-year-old, but also because I actually feel it as a player that there's really only four choices here. So I'm struck by these two things. Uh, on the one hand, a kind of overwhelming infinitude of options for certain types of interactions or mm -hmm. actions. And on the other hand, on the stuff that I'm really interested in, which is the human interaction, a limitedness to the point of it making me uninterested. Mm -hmm. Is my reaction at all meaningful to your level of thinking? They're important reactions. If we were for a moment to go back to the affordances question, you know, what affordances of a genre might allow us to match the learning goals? So maybe, right, a first-person shooter may not be the best way to reach the kind of learning goals we're looking uh, to learn. But if you take, say, a first-person shooter, at first we would think, okay, no possibility of learning in that. What are you learning? Well, if you want to learn aiming and you want to get really good visual acuity, fine, right? There are good studies that say that, that, that you're going to actually improve your visual acuity in a, in a first-person shooter. But then you can look at, a, at games that push the, the genre, even for a first-person shooter, if you were to think about something like a Portal or a Portal 2. So this is a game in which you have a gun, but the gun opens up a portal in the wall, and you decide where the entry of the portal is and where the exit of the portal is, and then the physics engine will actually duplicate physics. So if I put a hole in the floor and I put a hole in the ceiling and I put them slightly off pace, I can push myself through the floor, drop through the ceiling, and move to my left, and the whole game is built of puzzles of this. And so you can use a system like that to teach physics. And it actually is, is not as limited as it first appears to be because someone has figured out the affordances of that genre to use them for alternate goals. Now, those designers are not, I don't think, necessarily started thinking about physics, but they started thinking about interesting puzzles. So for one is to say, I don't think genres are as limited as they may first appear. And the other thing is to think of if you are in a genre that has certain limits and you want to use it, how could you use those affordances? So thinking about limited choices of interaction was the other example that you gave. And one of my favorite game companies is Telltale Games, and they make pretty sprawling narratives. They're, you know, they work with HBO, and there are limited choices, kind of like if you think about a choose-your-own-adventure book, but they figured out ways to, to push the mechanics of the adventure game to new levels. So for example, you interact with a character, you only have four choices to make, one of them is to never say anything, and that will have consequences as well. But characters, you'll be notified that characters will remember what you said to them, and there are choice and decision points. And so they've actually been able to push the genre of the adventure game, in my opinion, to new heights and levels by making certain small changes in the genre, where you can actually get very interesting contemplative interactions, complex interactions with characters inside of a series like The Walking Dead video telltale game.
So again, they're pushing that boundary. So part of the excitement is how can we push the boundary of the genre? Um, how can we learn from the people who are pushing the genres in the major game companies from a learning perspective and then try to use those or build on those to reach our learning goals? So, you know, it may be choosing a different genre, you know, the genre of words with friends that brings grandparents and grandchildren together playing word games together, having a certain type of interaction. So I think because games are so wide, we don't always think about the kinds of games that may give us the most opportunity. Another example is The Sims, which is often used in games and learning circles. It's kind of open, sandbox. You can yeah. build and talk and interact, and it's incredibly successful. I like to think about Flow and Flower from a spiritual perspective, which are their very meditative games. So the more I think we immerse or learn about or become literate in game culture, I think the possibilities open up but it, it, you know, it takes a lot of work to try and think Clearly. about what those connections are. It takes a lot of work because this gets back to our original conversation But these tools are very productive and they require a lot of work. It's amazing um, all the incredible thinking and working you're doing. When can we expect to see the game out? So that's a part of what this process is, right? We've just built the prototype. We're hoping to release a version of the card game, I would say, in the next year to year and a half. And uh, we will see what happens with the prototype. It's important that there's support for these. You know, we've been very uh, blessed that the National National Endowment for the Humanities recognize the value of this project, and we're at the prototype stage there. So to now move to a game that gets distributed is a whole other set of uh, challenges and work that the team's excited about. So I'm not sure when the digital version of this will come out. And the game that you see that'll come out in the boxed edition may be very different than what we have now because we want to incorporate everything we're learning, about, learning right. about how people are learning. And that may mean changes in game mechanics. It may mean that strategy shifts to rhetorical structure. Part of what I'm doing as a scholar is not just uh, designing and, and releasing games, which is right. key, but also what are the learnings that we can come out. And then I share that with the community so that people working in this area can say, aha, okay, he pushed the boundary here, I hope, right, in small ways. And then we can incorporate it. Ultimately, your applications and your learning about the applications could perhaps be summed up the following way. You are learning about how digital learning can now be integrated into the way we understand learning at all. Technology is always going to change. So how can we look at the underlying learning principles from the digital, from technology, and really I'm always looking back to John Dewey in terms of experiential education. So what are the what are the things that we can learn about how digital media helps us get closer to the original Deweyan goals of having a, a rich, exciting, involved, uh, experiential participatory, education. Right. Participatory. So I think hopefully what we learn now will, you know, when we start moving more into the hollow lens and mixed reality and really virtual reality and mixed reality is the next wave. When we're there, what we learn about learning will now translate over because we're not so concerned about the shell or the particular technology, but how people learn in these different media settings. That's very clear that this iterative process is central to your endeavor, for which we're grateful because I know we'll be the beneficiaries of it. So thank That's you. my hope. <laughs> thank you very much for your work and for the conversation. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. Great to talk to you. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.